Well, it is really, really good to be back with you this morning. It was a, a good and necessary time away, three weeks. It's long enough to begin to decompress and to forget about some of the issues of life and take a different turn on things. But then it's also long enough to seriously and deeply miss the body and have a great longing to be back with you. And so we're back, we're refreshed, we're renewed, I'm fired up, we're in Matthew and we're ready to roll. We're ready to roll. Yeah, there we go. So here we are, Christmas in July. Amen. Amen. Christmas is just a delightful time of year. It's, It's probably one of my most favorite times of year. I have to confess, I, I love the lights, uh, the decorations, the, just the ambiance of the season, the music. I love to see my grandchildren's eyes sparkle when they come into the house and they see the Christmas tree all decorated and lit up. It's just a delightful, delightful time. But you know, in that season, it is also easy to forget about the real purpose behind this glorious time of celebration. It is so easy to get get caught up in all of the cultural encrustments of the Christmas season. The shopping lists, the the special recipes that need to be made, the the, uh, long overdue promises to see friends and family that the end of the year is rapidly approaching and you need to fulfill those and office parties and, and on and on it goes. And in the rush of it all, sometimes I think we can miss. We can miss really the the reason for the season, the, the real issue by which we celebrate. And so in the providence of God, here we are. It's perfect. Matthew chapter 1. If you're not there, open there now with me, please. Page 957 of Matthew chapter 1. Christmas in July. I've wanted to do this for years. I really have. But I thought if I walked in here one morning in July, sort of randomly asked the musicians to do Christmas carols and, you know, whatever, you would think I had lost it. But the text brings us here. And so what a wonderful opportunity to fulfill my heart's desire, Christmas in July. And by the way, I talked to Christian about that. And and he's as zany as I am because he said, I've wanted to do that. And So there was no arm-twisting necessary for Christmas carols, my brother, right? Beautiful. Matthew chapter 1, we're we're picking it up this morning in verse 18. We'll take it through the end of the chapter. But let me just review for you real quickly and, and get you up to speed. The first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 1 is a lengthy genealogy. You remember that. We worked our way through that genealogy. We noted that genealogies are very, very important to God. And because they're important to God, they need to be important to us. And this particular genealogy is really a legal chain, as it were. It establishes the legal right for Jesus of Nazareth to sit on the Davidic throne. To be the Messiah of Israel, the deliverer of his people and savior of the world. 
He had to have a legal right to do that. And this genealogy establishes that right. It presents to us in these first 16 verses a chain that links back to David and to Abraham. You remember that. And it speaks about the origin of the Davidic throne and how David coming to the throne of Israel was in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 17 that a line of kings would come from you, Abraham, as part of that great Abrahamic covenant. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David that he would have an heir on his throne forever. And so Matthew traces for us in somewhat abbreviated form the rise and fall of the Davidic kingdom. In verses 1 through 6, we see the origin of the Davidic throne in fulfillment of God's promise. Verses 7 through 11 is the rise and then the, the fall or the decline of the Davidic throne, ending there in verse 11 with the deportation to Babylon as the throne had fallen into hard times. Matthew picks it up again in verse 12 and and takes it through verse 16. And really what we have there is the eclipse of the Davidic throne. It goes into full obscurity. These are dark, dark days. We could say that the Davidic scepter has been shattered. No one sits on the throne Israel is under the dominion of foreign Gentile powers. It is dark, it is hopeless, it is hopeless, it is desolate. And yet when all is dark, suddenly the light of the sun shines onto the pages of human history. And it illuminates those who have eyes to see. The ancient prophet Isaiah In chapter 9, spoke of it this way, beginning in verse 2. Let me read it to you. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The light will shine. And listen. As Matthew now describes for us, beginning in verse 18, the, the, the early rays of that light as it begins to, to shine upon the ancient people. It's really an amazing account he records for us here, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But 
when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place. That what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and, and took her as his wife. And he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Such a simple account. Such an abbreviated rendering of the greatest of events that God became man, that He stepped into space and time in order to deliver His people from their sins. As we look at this passage together this morning, there are four things that I would like to consider with you. Four things we can draw from this passage to consider regarding the birth of Jesus so that we might marvel at the grace of God, that we might fall on our faces in the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's look at these things together. It begins very simply with what I'm calling Joseph's dilemma. Joseph's dilemma, verses 18 and 19. It says in verse 18, that when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Betrothal. We have to go back in time. We need to put on sandals, as it were, and to understand something of the Jewish culture, to understand the significance of what's happening here. Betrothal was the Jewish means of bringing about a wedding. In the first century, it would be very common for a young man somewhere around 16 to 17 years of age to begin to think seriously about taking a wife. For girls, somewhere around the age of 13, perhaps 14, would be considered marriageable. And so they had a two-step process to bring this about, and it began with what is called betrothal. Betrothal. Typically, what would happen is that the families of the, of the man and the woman would arrange together, consulting with their children, their youngsters, about their desires in the matter. But they would consult together and they would arrange for a marriage. They would arrange for marriage. And this new relationship would be formalized under what was called a betrothal. A betrothal. It was a very, very solemn commitment, and and it was absolutely as binding as marriage entered into between the two families and the young man and the young woman. 
The period of betrothal could be as short as a few months, but more typically lasted about a year. About a year. During that time, the young man would be busily working away on his home, his place, where he would receive his bride to be with him. So he would be building his house, as it were. The young woman herself would use that time to prepare for her, all, the consummation of this marriage, and she would typically work on her wedding dress. So, ladies, she had a year to work on her wedding dress. Well, her husband-to-be prepared a place for them. After the betrothal period, the, the groom would come and would receive his wife from her father's house, and then he would take him along with the townspeople in a very large celebratory kind of parade back to the home that he had established. And then they would have a wild party that would go on for about a week. It was a big event. You remember in, in John chapter, what is it, John chapter 2, where there is the wedding at Cana and the wine is flowing at this great party. Well, this betrothal arrangement, they were every bit married except in a physical sense. It was a very solemn and legally binding arrangement. In fact, they had a, a little formula that the young man would recite to his future wife. He would say, and quote, By this you are set apart for me according to the laws of Moses and Israel. So there would be this solemn vow that he would make to her. Furthermore, it would be necessary for him to provide to her father what was called a mohar or a bride price. He had to give him a gift. The gift could be money, the gift could be animals, or the gift could be labor. But there must be some sort of economic gift given to the family for the hand of their daughter or, or sister in marriage. The gift indicates the young man's sincerity, his, his willingness to go through with the transaction. Now, we have a, a sort of a... a contemporary thing that we do too, right? That typically in an engagement, a young man gives a diamond ring to a young lady and he does so as, a, as an indication of his seriousness and his financial ability to provide for her. So we have something, it's just not as binding as a betrothal. In fact, a betrothal could only be terminated by a written statement of divorce or death of one of the parties. That was the only way it could be ended. They were, in the eyes of the law, they were married. Infidelity would be what would justify the divorce. Infidelity. It was considered to be the equivalent of adultery. The equivalent of adultery. And it was punishable, by the way, under the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and following, spells this out if you'd like to track it down on your own, adultery punishable by the death penalty. Very serious matter. Most commentators agree that by the time of the first century that the death penalty was seldom imposed. Although it's certainly still a possibility, and in a remote and more rural area, beyond the prying eyes of Rome, 
it might actually occur. But the certificate of divorce, if she was not to be stoned, at least she must be divorced. And that certificate of divorce could be delivered to her publicly in front of the elders and the town, or it could be done privately in the presence of two witnesses. Either one would fulfill the requirements of the Mosaic law. So now you will feel for the situation. Look at verse 18 again. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that is, she had entered into this very solemn legal arrangement with Joseph. Before they came together, that is, before he took her into his home to consummate the marriage, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. She was found to be with child. Now, Luke fills in a few of the details for us in Luke chapter 1. We know that an angel Gabriel appeared to, to Mary and told her that she would, she would bear the Messiah, that the, the power of the Most High would come upon her and that she would conceive in her womb. And we also told her that her, her relative Elizabeth had also conceived late in life. And so Mary gets out of Nazareth and goes to spend time with her her relative Elizabeth, and she's gone about three months. According to verse 56 of Luke chapter 1, at the end of three months, she returns to her hometown. By now, she's three months pregnant. She's three months pregnant. She's found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. He had told her that it would happen. She had received it with really a remarkable measure of humility and grace if you read Luke's account. But now it's come true. Now she's back in Nazareth. Now she has to to look her husband in the eye. And she has to say, Joseph, I have something I have to tell you. Well, what? I'm going to have a baby. He says, what? What are you talking about? But you see, Joseph, it's not like that. It's not what you think. I've I've never been with another man. I love you. And I don't know how to explain it, but I'm going to have a baby. What's Joseph going to do? What in the world is he going to do? So he begins to ponder. He begins to ponder. What in the world am I going to do? Verse 19, he's he's torn now between duty and love. It says, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. Being a righteous man. It's an interesting statement. Speaks of him. Matthew speaks of Joseph. He is a righteous man. Now, when we hear that that word, that notion, righteous man, we we tend to think in, in Pauline categories about imputed righteousness. But that's not what's being talked about here. 
It's talking about someone who wholeheartedly seeks after God and is obedient to the law of Moses. It is, a, it is a man or it is a person in whom there is a practical righteousness that plays itself out. It is not a righteousness by which one could enter into the presence of God. It is not that they are inherently righteous. It is that they are a law-abiding person. They are, they are a keeper of the Mosaic Code. They desire to obey God. Luke chapter 1, verse 6. It's worth it to flip there quickly. Pick it up, verse 5. Luke 1, 5, and then 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife, from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. This is the relative of Mary. And they were, here's here's the word, they were both righteous in the sight of God. And then we have a little definition of it here. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They were righteous in the sight of God. They were walking blamelessly in the Mosaic law. Joseph is just such a man. Turn back to Matthew 1. He is a righteous man. He is in an incredible quandary. He is torn between his duty that would be required of him as a righteous man, which is to uphold the Mosaic law. He cannot take her as a wife. He cannot. For she, as best he can tell, has been unfaithful to him. She has violated the Mosaic law. She is an adulteress. Even if he wants to, he cannot take her as a wife. And yet at the same time, his his heart of love for her is immense. This is no simple thing. This is, this is not just something of an, you know, of an enraged spouse who feels like the other person has cheated on them, been unfaithful to them, and they, and they react to it. This is a man who loves her and loves God and finds himself in the middle of a quandary that he does not know how he can possibly get out of. And so he turns it over in his mind. Beginning of verse 20, you see that. When he had considered this, The Greek would indicate to us that that this was the process that came about as a result of a long and agonizing internal argument, as it were. So he comes up with a plan. He comes up with a plan. His plan is that he is going to privately, quietly divorce her. He's not going to take her before the town elders. He's not going to seek to publicly humiliate her. He's he's not going to try to punish her by publicly suing for divorce. He's he's not going to run the risk of of the crowd becoming enraged and and stoning her. He's going to do it privately. He's going to call for a couple of witnesses and very privately he'll hand her her certificate of divorce and send her on on her way. That's his plan. 
That's his dilemma. Then Matthew would have us consider something else, beginning in verse 20. And that is the credentials of Messiah. We need to understand that Matthew did not write this for us here merely so that we could step into the psychology of Joseph and and feel the pain of his situation, although I think it's real and not without profit to do so. Matthew is writing, as you remember, to Jewish Christians, and he's, he's writing these early chapters to set the stage for, his, for the thesis of his book, which is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Davidic king, the Messiah of Israel. And in order to do that, it's absolutely essential that Jesus has a legally valid claim to the throne. He has to have a claim to the throne of David. It must be an unimpeachable claim to the throne of David. Now, notice, by the way, back up in verse 16, Matthew has a problem. He's run his genealogy down, and he says, verse 16, to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Messiah. It's not his son. It's not in the proper bloodline, the legal claim through David to Solomon and on down kind of ends at Joseph, but it's not Joseph's son. So how can this Jesus have the the requisite credentials? Well, Matthew will answer it for us. And he will do it by giving us three independent credentials, as it were. Three independent credentials that that Matthew brings to bear here in a a kind of an apologetic way, using apologetics, that that is giving evidences that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He wants to certify the authenticity of this one who claims a right to the throne. And so he gives us these three lines of evidence. And the first is what I call the angelic announcement. The angelic announcement. And it begins in in verse 20, 21. When Joseph had considered his dilemma, behold, Matthew gives us this little textual indicator here. The idea is that you should stop and take notice. Slow down. Realize that something significant is about to be revealed here. So behold, this doesn't happen every day. In fact, it rarely happens. Behold, pay attention, sit up, wake up. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And he said to him, Joseph, son of David. So he's emphasizing the fact that 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 Joseph is in the, the line of David. Joseph, son of David. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That is, do not shrink back from taking her as your wife. Marry her. Carry it out. Fulfill it. For, because, the baby is from the Holy Spirit. 
Joseph, she is a virgin. She has been faithful to you. She has kept her vows to you. You can, as a righteous man, go forth and marry her. She's not disqualified. Joseph, marry the girl. Marry the girl. Still incredible to me when I think about this. That which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Well, what about my curiosity questions? That which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Period. God is not interested in satisfying all of the curiosity questions that one might ask. It is a declaration of reality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, but what? what, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Joseph, marry the girl. That which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Furthermore, verse 21, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now, you shall call his name Jesus. By the angel saying that to him, what he is telling Joseph is, you will adopt him. You will adopt him. He will become your legal heir. You will name him. And the right and authority to name him is a shorthand way of saying you will adopt him. He will become your legal heir. You are to officially and you are to legally accept the child growing even now in Mary's womb. And you don't get to name him Bar-Joseph. You name him Jesus. You name him Jesus. Why? The end of verse 21. Because, for, it is he who will save his people from their sins. It is he who will save his people from their sins. So Joseph receives this angelic announcement, credentialing the child. Secondly, we have in verses 22 and 23, a prophetic fulfillment. That is the word of God credentials this child. Now all this took place, Matthew says, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, and then he quotes. He quotes Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 from the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Those of you that are on the churches through the year in a Bible in a through the year Bible reading program, read Isaiah chapter 7 this morning, if you read your Bibles this morning. If you didn't read your Bibles this morning, presumably you've read Isaiah chapter 7 at some point along the way. It's a fascinating chapter. Seven centuries before the birth of Jesus, the throne of the king of Judah, the Davidic king Ahaz, the wicked Davidic king Ahaz is being threatened by a coalition 
made up of the king of the northern tribes of Israel and the king of Syria. They are threatening to come down and they are actually pressuring and and besieging Jerusalem. And their stated intention is to unseat the Davidic line to take Ahaz off the throne and to install someone else upon the throne. To do so would disrupt the promise of God to David that he would always have a descendant upon the throne. And it was at this crucial juncture that Isaiah, the prophet, appears to Ahaz and he admonishes Ahaz, place your faith in God, trust in God, and he will deliver you and your people. And to certify that God will do this, ask him for a sign. And you can make it whatever you want, as big as you want or as little as you want. You come up with whatever you would like God to do to prove to you that he will keep his word to you. And Ahaz said, oh, no, 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 I would never test God. I'm, I'm way too pious for that. Liar. He had already, if you were to follow the context, he had already arranged with a foreign nation to come in and to attack the rear guard of the, of the armies that were arrayed against him in order to break the siege. He's not trusting in God at all. He is absolutely trusting in the Assyrians to come and to deliver him. And so Isaiah says to him, both to Ahaz and through Ahaz, to the faithless line of Davidic kings, you won't ask for a sign. I'll give you a sign anyway. And here it is. A virgin, an unnamed virgin, will conceive and bear a son, and she, the mother that is, will call the child's name Emmanuel, God with us. And before that child is weaned, God will shatter the coalition that has been brought against you. And indeed, historically, that's what happens. Matthew, looking back through the scrolls of the prophets, sees in this sign a prophecy of the coming king. He looks to this and he sees that one who was spoken of to be born in Isaiah's day as somehow prefiguring the divine child to be born of the Virgin Mary, who is truly God with us in a far deeper and more profound way. It is a prophetic fulfillment, Matthew says, that credentials this unborn child. Third, there is the official adoption itself. Verses 24 and 25, when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, that is, he brought her into his home immediately, and he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And here it is, he called his name Jesus. He adopted the child. He adopted the child. He brought him into the legal line of David. Matthew tells us here in verse 25, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. I think he does that to to just further communicate the supernatural birth of this child. To eliminate any possibility that someone might say that it was truly he had a human father. He says he had no sexual relations with her until she had given birth. We learn later in Matthew chapter 13 and 
verses 55 and 56 that Mary and Joseph had a number of children together following the birth of Jesus. So we're considering Joseph's dilemma. And in it we see the grace of God. We're considering Jesus' messianic credentials. And in them we see the grace of God. We're considering now the purpose of his coming. The purpose of his coming. And for that we roll back up to verse 21 in in the, in the angelic announcement. Why did he come? Matthew gives us here by recording this conversation from the angel a glimpse of the purpose and the coming of Messiah. It is redemption. He came to redeem. Paul says it this way, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Matthew records it in the words of the angel this way, She will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Let's take a moment or two and just consider that statement. You'll call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Their sins. Just think about that for a moment. Their sins. People have sins, right? Sin is, is not only an act of wrongdoing, it is, it is a state of alienation from God. It is a failure to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thus we all have sins. It is to be cut off from a saving relationship with our Creator And it's an alienation that that manifests itself as a life grows in the form of pride and selfishness and, and sensuality and fear and even violence. I've said it many times, one may look no further than our own nursery to see the reality of this human condition. On virtually any week of the year, Someone in there will take a toy and bash someone else over the head with it. And I can assure you their parents did not teach them to do that. They didn't need to teach them. It comes naturally to them. It is a manifestation of their alienation from God, their sins. Beyond that, the, the angel says to Joseph, you shall name him Jesus. Jesus. The Hebrew equivalent, Joshua. Joshua, it means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. It means to be saved. To be saved. That that is to be delivered, to be rescued from something. His name is Jesus. His, His name is Savior. He will deliver. He will rescue. I mean, we can be delivered from many things, right? We can be delivered from hard work. We can be delivered from danger. We can, we can be delivered from unpleasant tasks. But fundamentally, we need to be delivered from sin. We need to be saved. 
We need to be delivered from sin and its terrible consequences. And for that, we need a Savior. We need Jesus. We need Yahweh is salvation. We need someone who can be our substitute, someone who can stand before the the bar of God's justice, someone who is human, perfectly human, so that they can stand in for you and I, and someone who is divine in order that their death would have infinite merit in order to pay for the sin of his people. We need the God-man. We need the child born of the Virgin Mary. We need Emmanuel, God with us. You'll call his name Jesus. Because he will save his people. You see it, verse 21? He will save his people. This is probably the most sobering statement here. He will save his people. That is, not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will be saved. Jesus says later in Matthew chapter 11 in verses 28 to 30, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Come to me, he says. And yet all did not come. All did not come. Only those who come will experience His salvation. Only those who come will be saved from their sins. Only those who come are His people. Are His people. There's a pernicious error presently circulating that somehow following death that all will ultimately receive Jesus and the love of God. And that over time, given enough opportunities to be wooed by the love of God, hell itself will be emptied. And that all will end up in heaven with God. The book released in this year called Love Wins. Love Wins written by a man by the name of Rob Bell. In fact, he was on the cover of Time magazine. He wrote this book. And he says that eventually the loving kindness of God will eventually cause everyone to desire him and to to come to know and believe in him and no one will reside in hell. My friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. The Bible is exceedingly clear. It is appointed unto men to die once. And then comes the judgment. The opportunity for Christ is here and now while air fills your lungs. The opportunity to be his people, to be counted as part of his people is now. It is here. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to believe. There are no opportunities beyond the grave. And the sobering and frightening thing, my friends, is is that we don't know the moment in which God will close the window of our lives. When the opportunity will end. You don't know. I don't know. 
Today is the day of salvation. Beyond that, the angel says, it is he who will save. You see it, verse 21? It is he who will save his people. Salvation comes only through Jesus. The Greek is very emphatic here. The pronoun is put forward in the sentence. He, it is he who will save, none other. Jesus said it this way in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. There are no other ways. It it is an unpopular message. It is a message that cuts across the foolishness of our own culture, which says there are many ways to God. There are not many ways to God. There is one way, and that way is Christ. It is He who will save. Peter said it this way in, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 11. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is Christ alone. It is Christ alone. And finally, the angel says... He will save his people from their sins, from their sins. We will be delivered from our sins. He didn't come just to enable us to escape eternal punishment. It's not Jesus is not a fire insurance policy. It is through a faith relationship with him that we escape not only the penalty for our sin, but the very power and ultimately presence of sin itself. It is through Christ and belief in his gospel that our slavery to sin is severed and broken. Paul is very clear in Romans chapter 6. We are saved by the gospel and we have power over sin by believing that same gospel. Prior to coming to Christ, we are slaves of sin. We have no choice but to sin. It is what we do by nature. But after we have come to Christ, we have been put into a new relationship. The Spirit of God dwells within us. And by faith in His gospel, that unlocks the power of the Spirit to say no to sin. We can look temptation in the eye and say, no, I do not have to do this. Christ has died for me. He has set me free. Sin no longer has absolute power over you and I. But let us not underestimate it. It remains strong. Is that not true? The power of sin is strong. The draw is pervasive. But my friends, in Christ, we have been set free. We have been set free. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Someday, when Christ returns to take us home, when the bridegroom comes after having prepared the Father's house, and he comes to receive the bride to himself, whose dress is white and spotless, and he takes us to be with him in glory, the last vestiges of sin will be done away with. And that should excite you. It should motivate you should cause you to marvel at the grace of God. That takes us to what I call our response. 
What will be our response to these truths? It's a simple message, isn't it? I mean, in just a few verses, Matthew has laid this out for us. It's, It's very simple and yet it's profound. How will we respond? Are you bored? Does the Christmas story bore you? Have you heard it so many times? You've you've read it on so many Christmas cards. Yeah, yeah, I know all that. I'm bored. Give Give me something else. Bored. Are you blown away? Are you awed to contemplate what God has done? Second person of the triune Godhead has condescended to humble himself to step into space and time to become a man. And to die. To refuse to exercise his prerogatives. To take the form of a slave. And on his cross. To take all of the wrath of almighty God the Father. For all of the sin of his people. And to drink the cup of the wrath of God to the very last drop. My friends, it's easy to say. It's very easy to say. It's easy to write. God became flesh. It may be easy to say. It may be easy to write. It is impossible to comprehend. You sooner comprehend the triune nature of God is to comprehend the incarnation. Paul calls it in 1 Timothy the mystery of godliness. Give up on your pondering and fall down on your knees. Let's pray. God, our Father, we come again to this story this morning and and I thank you, O Lord. I thank you, O Lord, that, that we've come here in July. Because we're six months away from all of the cultural encrustations, all the celebratory entrapments. We have a chance, O Lord, to consider, to ponder anew the mystery of godliness. 
that in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son. And you sent Him forth that He might die in our place. And that you on the third day might raise Him from the dead and and seat Him at your right hand where He intercedes for us even now and waits to receive His Davidic throne. Preparing the place for us as He promised in John 14. That He will come and we, we believe our Father, the time grows short. That He will come. That He will smash His enemies. He will establish His kingdom of peace and righteousness. Where sin will be crushed. Where disease will be no more. When poverty and violence and injustice will be done away with. We will enjoy life as as it has been made for us to live. Oh, Father, sin is an intruder, it is an enemy. Christ has conquered sin. Oh, let our hearts be filled with wonder as we think again on these things. Let us marvel at the grace of God. And let our faith in Jesus Christ be rekindled. And for those, my Father, whose faith is not yet real, may this day, as they think on these things, may your Spirit cause them to come alive in them, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We ask it in His name. Amen.